HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. If you're a food writer today, which one is better, print or digital media? Find out today on this episode of Tech Bytes. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. It is Monday afternoon at 1 p.m., and that means it is time for Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. I'm Jennifer Leutze, your host, and I am joined in the studio today, as always, by our engineer in Mission Control, Jack Inslee. Hey there. Who is one year older. Yeah, that's true. He had a big birthday over the weekend. Are you feeling one year wiser? Uh, not yet. One day in, no noticeable changes. I kind of shaved a little bit. There's that. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm feeling the same. Wow. So you are, you're old enough to shave now yeah, is the big headline. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Joining him back in Mission Control, we have also the talented on the decks, Liz Smith. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Always happy to be here. I feel really extra special today because we have Jack and Liz in the booth. It doesn't always happen, but when it does, I know. something special. It's like a total eclipse of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and joining me today in the studio is Lori Wolliver, who is a longtime writer, editor, mostly in the culinary food arena, although more recently in a little personal history, lifestyle kind of travel arena also. True. All of this is true. Yes. Hello. She is also a longtime friend, unindicted co-conspirator. <laughs> oh, dear. And really one of the joys of hosting a radio show where you get to book people that you like and want to talk to. And sometimes it's Really, you get to book the people you like and want to talk to. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> Thrilled. So we start off every show, uh, like a good meal, with an appetizer, and we go around the room and we talk about apps that we like, apps that we love. I'm going to start off, because this is the episode we're going to talk about digital versus print media. I'm going to start off with a nifty little app called Texture. And you may have seen it coming across your feeds. They've been doing some heavy, heavy promoting and Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. Texture is being billed as the Netflix of magazines, mm. where you pay a monthly subscription fee of about 10 bucks, and then it allows you to read and download magazine content from a plethora of titles. It is a joint venture from Condé Nast, Hearst, Meredith, News Corp, and Time, Inc., so they all banded together to create a platform where they can probably get paid for their content versus just sort of the click and read for free or what do you do? And there's a firewall. So I downloaded it. I'm checking it out. It's kind of interesting. 
so far. Um, you can the the upshot is that you can download things and save them, so it becomes native to your phone. So if you are underground on the L train, for example, coming from Chelsea, going to Bushwick, you can read an article in Vanity Fair that was online without having Wi-Fi. So that's kind of interesting. I will report back on that. I am on the seven-day free trial. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to warrant ten bucks, but we shall see. Ten bucks a month. Ten bucks a month, unlimited. It's the mm. Netflix mm. of magazines. Mm. Interesting. Do you have an app that you like these days, Lori? I do. Uh, it's pretty basic. I'm kind of a luddite at heart, and uh, but I am married to somebody who is deeply immersed in every aspect of technology and things that make our lives either easier or more complex, depending on your point of view. I find I tend to get a little irritated at the the technology but my husband put this great uh thing on my phone called remote and i think that's just what it's called remote and it allows me to uh control our home itunes library via a button on my phone so i can play through our home stereo system any of the many probably millions of tracks that we have on our itunes library and i don't have to mess around with anything except this one button so it makes me happy. It it keeps things uh, on an even keel in our in our home, and I get to listen to music. It's easy. So it's like an app for the universal remote, so you don't have to yes. deal with all the other pieces and the components of your right hi-fi system. Right. I'm not talking to the Mac that talks to the whatever. I mean, it's clearly from my use of language around this, you know, I am I'm a little bit uh, behind the times, but I, I do love the the remote that just skips all the middleman and lets me just play my prince and my you know my aha songs take on me while i wash the dishes <laughs> yes can you use your remote how far away can you be like can you turn on the stereo in your house right now in your apartment right now that is a very good question i mean could you be out and then all of a sudden you know have your Ambush husband somebody. and son all of a sudden you know force them to get jiggy with it i will report back to you on that i don't know but uh, it's very possible seems possible in this crazy world because if it's connected mm-hmm. maybe it has to, uh, well there may be a range issue but uh I'm wi-fi the, is wi-fi though it's true it's true i don't know that's I'll, fun though I'll i like it. that yeah okay test that and report back mm-hmm. we can do a call in okay all right <laughs> Jack, do you have an app for us? Oh, actually, before you call out an app, uh-huh. I would like to check back in with you about your app from last week, which was the app 30 Days. Yep. Because you were going to start a 30-day program of being... Failed. Failed. So the, I didn't even get to finish the sentence of being slightly more physically active. I know. I didn't want you to finish the sentence. <laughs> you were on um, mountain climbers a week ago. You were starting yeah. afresh with mountain climbers. And what I happened? will start afresh today. You know, it was, uh, it was a week of celebration. What can I say? We're going to pick it back up today. Okay. Yeah. So you're starting, are you, are you reset back to one today? Yeah, we're, we're resetting back to the um, do as many as you can, and, and that will, that kind of sets your, that sets your month. It's fine. It's February 1st. I feel okay about that. Yeah. You know. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I, I, it's good. You have to keep me accountable on this show. I'm glad that you'll get to ask me all the time. So Every know. week. Every week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can start phoning in to... Your show, Full Service Radio, on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. Yeah, you could. Or on the subsequent show, Gunwash, on Thursday nights at 9 9 p.m., which is a phone-in show. That's right. Just call in and embarrass me. Be like, hey, Spliffington. Yeah, I know you're talking about, you know, Coachella, but Jack, did you do any burpees? (laughs) I hope the answer will be yes. Oh, man. Well, thank, thanks for that. I'm going to put another call out to listeners kind of like way back when, when I was asking for weather apps and got the um, dark sky wreck. So uh, as I've been mentioning, I'm traveling more and more these days, which is amazing and great. Um, I have kind of developed airline loyalty with Delta just because I got uh, one of the Sky Miles Amex cards, and I'm like trying to rack up as many Sky Miles as I can. That being said, the um, you know predicting 
flight prices is still this like dark mystery that nobody seems really able to answer. And everybody has their own kind of thing. They're like, oh, you need to be on Priceline. Oh, you need Hipmunk. Oh, get this app. Get Kayak. Right. And they're all sort of the same to me. I haven't found the one that tells me like accurately buy this now. It's the cheapest it's going to be or wait. More flights will be added. And I mean, like I get to DJ in Miami every month and the prices could be anywhere from 230 to like 600. So it's just so hard to pull the trigger on a flight, you know? So anyway, if there are any listeners out there that have like a surefire way of uh, buying the cheapest flights possible, let us know. Okay. Right. Well, you heard it, people. Jack needs cheap tickets to Miami. That's right. Have you done a, the TripAdvisor alert? Uh, That's pretty decent. Is it? Yeah. I mean, you program in where you want to go between which airports, and you program, you put in a baseline price, mm. and then it'll just trawl through things. And as soon as something pops that's below your price point, it right. will send you an email. Yeah, that's like this app Hopper, too. Right. There's one that, there are just so many of them, you know? It's like the weather thing where you're like, I don't know which one's better than the rest. And it turned out, like, all this time later, Dark Sky actually is the most accurate. So I'm looking for the Dark Sky of flight apps. Okay. I also... I'll pay five bucks for it, too. You'll pay five bucks for it, Like I paid for Dark Sky, you know? I I did pay for Dark Sky. Well, if that doesn't exist to all you uh, aspiring tech entrepreneurs... Exactly. The market's there. Yeah, the market's there to build the the Priceline app. Yes. Liz, do you have an app for us? I do. I've been experimenting with Instagram's latest offspring boomerang. So I'm not sure if you have had the chance to try it out yet, but basically what it is is a the the app takes a burst of a million photos and it strings them all together. So it's it's like a GIF but a little different. So you hold down the the burst button for about 5 seconds and it it works best if you have like something that's moving, like I don't know, somebody doing a cartwheel or something. And basically, it'll string all those burst pictures together, making it look like a little GIF animation type thing. And then you can post it on Instagram or pretty much anywhere else. So it's some, something a little different. That's Putting, fun. Have you been using it? I have. I have. So it's mostly been used on my dog, not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get her to do the perfect fetch, catch ball midair type thing. We're still working on it, Scout and I. So <laughs> I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> and we can see these amazing dog gifts on your Instagram feed? Uh, not just yet. We haven't gotten it yet. I want to make it perfect so it looks like, oh, this is the first time I've used it. Look how perfect this is. So uh, we're still working on it. Oh, Liz. <laughs> Social media is not about being perfect. Social media is about being spontaneous and crazy and the more, letting it go. And the, you can always delete it later if it's really crappy. You know, the more that I listen to your show, Jen, the more I think I agree. <laughs> well, if people do want to follow you and wait for that perfect dog gift moment, what's your Instagram handle? Liz the Smith. Liz the Smith. That's me. Okay. And joining us, very exciting, is Melissa Clark, who is also a longtime, very prolific food writer, cookbook author, and also longtime friend. At the top of the show, I was saying one of the great things about hosting a show is you get to invite the people that you want to talk to. I'm happy to be talking to you and happy to be here. Thanks, Jen. Yay. Yay. So we're just talking about apps. Not the appetite, like in your New York Times column. Well, they go hand in hand in they my do. world, apps and appetites. Do you have an app that you like really a lot right now, or only well, but a goodie, a new one? Of course, I love, the, I love the cooking app. I love the New York Times cooking app. And if you haven't downloaded it, you should, because it works really well. It is a very good app. So it is um, all of the recipes in our New York Times database. There are thousands and thousands of them. Many of I them think are it's mine. in the ballpark of 17,000 yeah. because I was on it this morning. Yeah, I, I was going to say 16, but they've probably, it's probably even bigger at this point. Um, and what it really works well, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, a lot of the recipes are mine, but it's just a, it's a good app. Um, so that is one of my favorites. I use it all the time. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, I really do find a lot. I mean, I have to say, you know, I heard you were just talking about Instagram, and that is one of my favorite places to get inspiration. I really, I am on there all the time. I follow a million great foodies. I'm looking at what they're making for dinner. I'm getting ideas. I'm looking at what they're eating in restaurants. Even terrible lighting, even if the photo is awful, I get a sense of the food. And I just, I get the idea, you know, especially when they put, I love it when people put a description of what the food is, not just the photo, but what are you eating? What is it? And maybe an adjective. Or, then I can just 
kind of take that and put it in the you know, store it away for when I need to come up with something for beets. I'm like, oh yeah, that Instagram photo with those beets and that smoked mozzarella and the anchovies. Yum. I just made that up. You did just make it up? I did just make that up. But you know, something like that. That's stay, good stay tuned as the New York Times recipe ticker goes to 17,001. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Melissa and Lauren in studio today to talk about print versus digital in the food writing world. One of the things that we don't talk a, a lot about when we talk about the digital technology is we don't really talk about the impact that it has on old things or life before as we know it. We get so caught up in the, this is how it is now, and it's so convenient, and it's amazing. But we get a little lost and, and forget sometimes, I think, you know, the history of things and, and what's changed. And is it actually better or not? Well, you know, I thought of that when you were talking about your app, Texture, the, the app that you're interested in, Texture, because I wonder, is this just a fire sale for like, okay, let's let's just make a little more money off exactly. this content before print goes straight to the grave. And I hope that's not the case, but it's you have to wonder, you know, when it starts to be all of this content that you used to pay $5 per magazine or more or whatever, that's now... Uh, unlimited content for $10 a month. It doesn't necessarily bode that well, certainly for writers, I don't think. But, you know, I, I can't pretend to know the real business model or the real way forward for, for print uh, publishing. I'm just kind of a, a content creator. So I don't, I don't, you know, I think it's better in some ways. I think the, the, the big uh, boom in, in web outlets has been great for writers in terms of more opportunities to put your content out there, especially if you're young and you're just getting started. Suddenly there are a million websites, a million blog places where you can put your name out there. Whether or not people are seeing that is another question, but there's much more opportunity certainly than when I started uh, trying to, to get noticed as a writer low these 17, 18 years ago. So Melissa, would you put your, the start of, where would you put the start of your writing career? Um, yeah. About, about the same? Yeah, 17, exactly. 18 years ago? That's about right. So 17, 18 years ago, both of you slightly different trajectories in. Melissa comes from really a cookbook start to You know, I, I, start, I started um, cookbooks at the same time I started writing for Time Out New York. That was one of my first. That was like, but I was also, I mean, I actually started, I think it was more like 20 years ago. And it was really the beginning of the internet in terms of food content. Like that was right when it was starting. And I did my very first pieces, Time Out New York. I had the cookbooks. My first cookbook was called Bread Machine Cookbook because bread machines were just out then too. And I was writing online. Hearst Magazine started a website like they were one of the first. And they had me, I had a column, believe it or not. And they actually paid me a dollar a word back which, in 1995. Which was a huge <laughs> I mean, amount of money back then. I know. A dollar a word I in mean, 1995. Right. Can you imagine? You don't get a dollar a word now. And that was, you know, 20 years ago. So this was a great, this was a great time to be a writer starting out because like, like Laurie was just saying, there were a lot of, you know, burgeoning places, new places to write and they were paying you. And so the, the dollar a word comes from the print yeah. and magazine and newspaper land because that's how writers at that point in time were paid exactly and two like a dollar fifty two dollars a word that was if you were really spectacular there's even that episode of sex in the city where carrie's talking to her editor at vogue and trying to get like you know two dollars a word (laughs) (laughs) i've heard three dollars and four dollars a word too for the top tiers oh my goodness i know and so at that point in time what were you aspiring to do what was your next move, your holy grail, the the thing that, wow, if I could just write for... I mean, for me, it was if I could just make enough money to support myself as a... I mean, I was also co-checking at that point, you know? I mean, so I'm there I am, you know? It's like, I'm not just writing. I am, even though I'm getting paid as a writer, I'm not making enough to live on in New York. So I'm, I'm all I'm co-checking. I'm, you know, working in restaurants. I'm doing everything I can to try to cobble together. So my, I just wanted to make a living as a writer. That was my goal. Not to co-check anymore, not to work in restaurants anymore, just 
to write. And um, I did it. <laughs> so I feel like I but, but, you know, I mean, I think probably the pinnacle back then in the 90s was what it was the magazines. It was, you know, the, it was gourmet back at, back in the day. It was food and wine for sure. It was the New York Times. I mean, it was the print publications were that's where you want to the get gold to. standard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now that's now it's changed. Now I feel like there's just as much status writing for Internet publications as there are for print. I mean, and also all good print magazines have their Internet components. I mean, you don't just have a print. There is no such thing anymore. It's just a print publication. Is there? Cherry Bomb. Oh, cherry. Whoa, wow. Okay, but they're doing something. You know what, though? Maybe the tide is coming back around. I think so. Well, before we get too yeah. far ahead, and we are going to circle back to Cherry Bomb and print, because I do think that the, there's a, definitely a, a resurgence in that. Lori has an amazing article, which is really one of my favorite things that she's written, and I like many things that she writes. Back in June 2014, she wrote an article on thebillfold.com about her personal story of how she became a food writer. And it's really good and really revealing. Um, But for anybody who's interested in becoming a food writer, to Melissa's point, you know, it's like any other artistic endeavor. She was doing a lot of other things and hustling before she could sustain herself financially as a writer and as did Lori and part of their part of the story she tells is not just making enough money to sustain yourself financially in New York City which is an expensive town but also at some point to get health insurance right right and I will say that I uh, still do not support myself as a writer uh, solely I mean I have a whole other job, a part-time job. I work for Anthony Bourdain. I manage his schedule and do kind of an administrative role that's, um, that helps me pay my mortgage and, you know, live in New York. Uh, I did, the the only two times I was able, that I really was supporting myself as a writer was when I had uh, two consecutive staff positions on magazines. And um, that was great in its own way, but uh, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. I mean, I've always kind of there's part of me that also kind of wants to have something else going on because the the pressure of having to completely support yourself through writing and and creative endeavors is very um, in New York is very to me too much you know the idea that I want to be able to have some hard skills that pay the bills that are not about me sitting down and writing something is it the the endless requirement to produce? Yeah, and the hustle. To produce content and hustle. The pitch, the hustle. There's so much time that goes into the work that's not even about the writing. That um, for, and, and maybe the more you do it, the, the, the more efficient you can be with it. But for me, I mean, I've been in like a hard pitch uh, season since uh, the first of the year. And uh, it's sort of frustrating. It's Ultimately, it always works out. But, but the hours and hours that you spend crafting pitches and doing research and contacting people and going back and forth. And I mean, those are not accountable hours. They do not, you do not get paid. You know what I mean? You get paid if you sell an idea, you know? So uh, for me, it's always been very comfortable to uh, cook on the side or now, you know, be a sort of an admin person or do something where I feel like I know no matter whether the creative juices are flowing or not, I'm going to get paid at the end of the month. And so to go back to the dollar a word, which is, you know, amazing, as we had more, have more and more outlets in the digital space, one of the things I've observed is that because the internet is so democratic and there are so many places, you can put up your own personal platform and have a blog. You can put up a personal platform, a personal space on an existing platform like a medium, You can be just, you know, writing things in Facebook or on Instagram, and then you can go to the digital version of things like Edible or Time Out or Epicurious or the New York Times. But now we've come full circle where, oh, we'll pay you $50 for the article, which translates to nickels and dimes, a word, but we'll pay you more if you get clicks. Ah, Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, the Billfold article that you uh, mentioned, I had such a great time writing it. I got tremendous feedback on it. I w- the base rate was $25. and they, How many words was it? It was long. Like 3,000. 3,000 <laughs> It was words. one of those, like, too long, did not read for a lot of people, I'm sure. <laughs> But um, it's worth it, though. Yeah, Yeah, it's worth it. The base rate was 25 and they gave me 50 because it got such tremendous uh, response. So 
you know, it's a case of something that I really enjoyed writing. It was obviously very personal, and, and I uh, got to be funny and got to sort of, you know, I, I obviously knew the subject matter very well. But, I, you know, I literally got $50 for that. And it took me as much time as it would take. And it wasn't reported, you know, clearly there wasn't the same process as other um, types of stories. But, uh, it, you know, it was a case of, of just doing it because I wanted to do it, not because it was a, a, a financial gain for me at all. So That's amazing. Yeah. You doubled your price, but it's still fifty dollars. So what's what's three thousand divided by fifty dollars? Yeah. Like what does that come out to? A don't, word? don't don't even don't. <laughs> it's just too. It's too depressing. But you still continue to do it because that's ultimately, I, I like guess, because yeah. you like being a writer. You really love it, or that's really your calling. I do. Yeah. I mean, I could figure out many. I was saying earlier. You know, you had a guest last week who was saying. There are, if I wanted to make a lot of money, I would not be in this business. And then she's a content creator right. and video. Allie Rosen of Potluck Video. Right. And Episode I, number 48. That really resonated <laughs> with me. I mean, clearly there's some part of me that, I, I mean, I, I want to I continue to write. I've always wanted to write. Uh, I went to culinary school, so I had something to write about. Because as a person out of college, I realized, well, I have this desire to write, but... I don't really, you know, I don't have a topic. I don't have an expertise in anything, but I don't I do love to cook and let me see if I can put these two things together and figure out a way to put some food on the table and so that's that was the way I figured out to do it. I don't know if I would advise a young person today to do that, but to do what? To go to cooking school to or to, to Well, to go to cooking school in order to be a food writer. I don't know, but although yeah, I'm glad I did. I I feel like it gave me a base. It gave me a credibility that I wouldn't, I don't know how I would have uh, gotten that otherwise. Oh, see, know? I always tell people to go to, to culinary school or to work in a restaurant or to do both, always. Mm-hmm. Does it depend on what kind of food writer you want to be? No. Nope. I mean, in your field. No. I, I mean, both I, of you have written cookbooks and write articles about cooking and talk with chefs, so definitely the industry side, but... If I want to be a critic or a lifestyle writer? It just makes you a strong... If you want to focus on food, lifestyle writer is different. But if you want to focus on food, as even as a restaurant critic, I would say the more understanding you have of how food gets made, the stronger you're going to be, the better you're going to be. Plus, there's so much competition out there. There's so many... I mean, being a food writer is a thing right now. Everybody wants to be a food writer. And, you know, it's a pretty cool job, so I I, I highly recommend it. But we want the edge, right? So what's your edge? What's your edge going to be? And um, I think Amanda Hesser actually wrote a really good article for Food 52 about some of the things you can, active things you can do to be a food writer, you know. And so going to cooking school is one of them. Learning how to farm, learning where your food comes from is another one. You know, these things give you the edge. And, of course, the most important thing also at the same time is working on on your craft. Learn how to write. Take writer's classes. Go and do workshops. You know that no matter how good a writer you are, you can always be better. What if you just have audience and clicks? What if you have 150,000 Instagram followers and you can be a food writer? Well, then be a food writer. <laughs> I mean, if you don't, you know what I mean? It depends on what kind right. of food writer well, you are. Well, I mean, does, yeah. the, does the digital age and the accessibility and gaining traction and audience? If you can figure out how to monetize those 150,000 Instagram followers fantastic but if you want to write for a serious publication and you want to have you know status and respect in the industry you got to do better than that like that doesn't mean anything a lot of people have 150,000 Instagram followers I am not one of them by the way although if you do want to follow me it's Clark Barr Um, (laughs) but you know I mean but that's that's not that's not an account having Instagram followers is great but it's not an accomplishment really I mean it is an accomplishment but it's a different kind it's not a writing accomplishment it's it's something different yes Right. There are skills you have to bring to the table. Uh, having worked as a web editor a little bit uh, for a few years, uh, yeah, somebody that just has a, a, a popularity, if they, can't, if they can't craft a pitch, if they can't write, if they're giving you copy that's garbage and you have to then spend your time fixing it or fact-checking or, you know, that's not valuable as a, you know, to, from, the, from an editor's perspective. If you can't write, you're, you're, you're just a popular person on the Internet. Internet famous. Internet famous, yeah. And again, it's like, how are you going to make the money for that, right? Like, that's what I want to know. And, you know. Well, I would kind of like to be internet famous in the sense that if we can make some money for heritageradionetwork.org, that would be fantastic. And that would be fantastic because this is my segue into the commercial. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 charity, and we exist 
100% on members and sponsors. And right now, we're going to hear from our sponsors out in Napa Valley, Cane 5 Vineyards. And the break music today is by Keto. We'll be right back on Tech Bites. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Well, if you're wondering what the hell you just clicked on, this is Tech Bytes on the Heritage Radio Network, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that technology is digital media, and we are talking with two really prolific, amazing food writers, Melissa Clark and Lori Williver, about over the past two decades, having seen the advent of digital media, which is better, print versus digital? And I think there's a huge popular belief that digital media is killing print media. It is definitely commoditizing content and food writing for sure. Whereas you used to be able to get a dollar a word, now you get $25 for 3,000 words. Or, you know, we'll pay you a few dollars, but, you know, you need to earn your wage in clicks or. You know, Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook social media posts kind of merge into being writing, which is weird to me. But anyway, I do think on the to counterbalance that, like many things, when we go too far in one direction, I do think print media is having a little bit of resurgence. And one of the things that um, mentioned briefly at the beginning of the show was Cherry Bomb, which is a magazine that is in its sixth issue right now, I think three years in. There's a show on Heritage called Radio Cherry Bomb. Uh, Claudia Wu and Carrie Diamond, two women who are really focused on women in the food world, whether that be writing, chefing, cooking, creating, styling, experiencing, media. And their magazine is beautiful. It's print. It comes out twice a year. It's styled and on heavy paper and is something that you keep. It's almost like a coffee table magazine. And it's the antithesis, I think, to the $25 clickbait, you know, well, story. I, I do feel that um, what, what, why it works so well with uh, Cherry Bomb is because it is an objet. It is not right. just a magazine. It is this beautiful thing. It's a collector piece. It's it a, is. It's a thing. Yeah, it's like a book. It's like people are still buying cookbooks. Right, because it's tactile and it's yes. a thing you can hold and take with you. Yeah, which is very different from your, you know, the, ma- I mean... People used to save gourmets, but people don't... I don't think... They used to sell the gourmet-branded binder to collect (laughs) all your issues in, where at the end of the year, you would buy the gourmet binder to put your 12 issues in from the year. Yeah, but that's not... People don't do that anymore. We recycle way too quickly, in a way. Mm -hmm. Although, maybe we're done. I mean, we read what we want. We're done. Plus, we know we can get it online. That's another thing. Like, we know that any, say, Bon App that we want any recipe is going to just be on Epicurious, so we can just get it. Yeah, but it's not always the case, you know. With Lucky Peach, uh, for instance, I've I've done some some stuff with print there, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm always very excited to be included in an uh, issue of Lucky Peach. But they do not put the print stuff online, or or they wait two or three years, and maybe it's a truncated version that goes up on the web, or it ends up someplace else. But it's not that direct, uh, you know, print to web uh, pipeline, you know. Uh, so. It's in. It makes sense. I absolutely understand wanting to protect the print brand and and to get people to drive them to subscribe, uh, and to to pick up the physical magazine. But the the reach is becomes so much less than than if it's straight to the web. So it's you know it's what's important to you as a writer. What's important to you as a publisher. It's uh, these are questions that are still kind of out for the asking. I think. It's interesting to me the way human behavior is that if you're at the newsstand, you're 
happy to pay your dollars to get your copy of your magazine to take on the plane or to buy your Sunday paper. But as soon as you're in front of your computer, in front of your phone, you want the exact same article for free. Yeah. And it, it, you know, standing in front of the newsstand, it has a higher value than it does on your smartphone or on your computer. And that is just something that the music industry has had to deal with and the TV industry is now dealing with and broadcast and, you know, print is dealing with it now. Also, I don't know what it is about human behavior where as soon as something goes to the digital version, we don't want to pay for it anymore. That's so it. You know, well, well, okay, so let's talk about that and let's talk about, so how are, what are publishers doing to monetize that content, right? They're putting ads, they're like, for example, ads before videos. Um, I can't, so I have ad blocker because... Of course you do. Of course I do. do. Right. I have ad pop-up blocker too. I think I have two of them. Yeah, exactly. And I'm happy to pay for that. Believe me, I'm happy to pay for my ad blocker. But now I can't get on to Forbes.com because I have my ad blocker enabled and they make you... They have that pop-up thing that comes up and it counts down and it's the quote of the day and... Yeah. And so, and I don't, so I'm like, okay, Forbes.com, you know, I'm not going to read you anymore. I mean, maybe I will. We'll see. I wonder if they're on texture. That's true, though. So then, you know, I know that publishers make decisions with the dailies, for example, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. They will take something out from behind the firewall and allow people to click through when they want to post it on social media to maybe entice people to come into the space and then say, oh, yeah, this is worth paying then to get behind the wall. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, there's also that you get a certain number of articles and then you have to pay. Like if you're if you become habituated to going to a site. Mm -hmm you're more likely to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So, Melissa, you have been writing your column for the Times since 2007, mm-hmm. I think. Yep. And I'm going to say that when you started writing for the Times, it was really predominantly about the print issue of the magazine, or the issue of the newspaper, the Wednesday food section. But now, as we said, you have the 17,000 video archive you do videos Mm -hmm. i've been on jet blue flights where all of a sudden that new york times content video thing comes up and there's melissa making a chicken (laughs) or you know some hummus and it's really funny but your job as a writer is different now it is very different it's changing a lot you know i mean that was up until a year ago print was first in the newsroom print was first and they just took whatever we did print wise and slapped it up online and now that's changing which is a, which is a good thing which is what it should and we're thinking okay digital first and we're producing you know two not completely separate copy blocks but the what i do for print and what i do for digital it's going to keep changing there's going to be more and more of a divide between the two because you can be much more dynamic obviously in digital you know you can click things and you we should be we should be getting people to stay with us longer you know that's that's the goal and if i can do that by adding links by i don't know all kind i mean i'm sure there's a there's a big long list of things that i will start to do you know and also get people in um paying much more attention to social media than we ever did before you know this is so i mean my job is changing a hundred percent and um but that doesn't mean that my writing is going to change that doesn't well, that mean was I'm my gonna... next that was going to be my next question if you are thinking about a recipe you know to write and to have in the print version of the you know wednesday food section and then you're thinking about making it in the video and how it looks and do yes. you think about sponsors and clicking in and well, all these different things do we, you... don't, we don't have sponsors so i don't have to think about that because um, that's sort of like you know the time we have thing. advertisers we do but it's like I mean, so far, only, it's far away from you at not, this point. Not only is it on a different floor, it's like in a different part of the building. You can't even get there on the same elevator bank. Like the way that they have the ad section, the Times is very, you know, old school that way, which is good. But I do think about, you know, I mean, I do think, okay, I like to, I'm trying to come up with a balance. And I think this is sort of a cross. I don't want to, I don't want to just do, you know, macaroni and cheese and um, pizza and, you know, thing and things with bacon that are like clickbaits. Like, I don't want to just do that food. I mean, I love that food. I'm happy to do it sometimes, but I also want to do weirdo things that have lots of anchovies and squid and things that are, you know, like, like chicken feet, things that people are not going to click on. And it's important to me just because it's important to who I am as a food writer. So it's, that is, you know, getting that balance not every section, but like every month or every couple of months. Like, okay, I have a couple of weirdo things that make me happy and feed my soul and educate people and show people, you know what? It's like, don't you really want to know the best way to cook squid? Even if you've never cooked squid in your life, you, you know, it might come up. Yeah. It might come up. So 
and but then I also, you know, so this week's column is on cheesy baked pasta with mushrooms. I mean, so and it's a delicious recipes. It's not, but it's squid is, optional. Yeah, they didn't put the squid in that one. They wouldn't let like, me put the squid like in that. I'm like, can we do the baked pasta with some squid? Or little crispy squid bits on the top Ooh, or something. Crispy squid bits, right? <gasps> Just like chop bits. it up, maybe fry it. Do like little. You think crispy that's you think that's bits. clickbait? Like squid, squid? Squ- like the equivalent of a bako bit, but I love squid. It. I think that I I would I would make that. <laughs> Lori has has digital changed the way you think about pitching stories. Is it very different when you think about pitching to digital versus print? Do you not want to really deal with digital anymore because print just is more economically satisfying? Digital uh, digital is great because it is easier to get a story placed. Uh, the editors are they're looking you know there's much more uh, there's many more days in the year. There's lo- they have a lot more space quote unquote space to fill. So it's easier in some ways to, to get a, a digital placement. Uh, you know, the stakes are lower, the, the money is lower, uh, and you can, you can sort of you know, go on a little trip and say, okay, here's 10 best breakfast bites in Miami or whatever, you know, very holistical style stuff. So it's, you know, the buy-in is lower from everybody's perspective. Uh, I still feel that, that there's more prestige in print. You know, it's harder to get a, a print, to sell a print idea because there's more at stake for the publisher. There's, you know, that's a finite space. They pay more. Uh, you know, oftentimes they're assigning a photographer. There's just a lot more resources that go into it. So they have to be pickier and really stay true to whatever brand vision that they have. So it's a harder... It's a harder thing to get uh, as a freelancer, um, and I'm always thrilled to get print. I do know that once I get a print assignment, I'm like in the hole for three months, working <laughs> on it, doing the interviews, doing the travel, doing whatever it is, and you know, at some point, always in this sort of k-hole, writer k-hole, like, oh, I hope the, I hope this publication folds so I don't have to finish this story oh, because <laughs> I am. I mean, that's just my personal uh, process as a writer, and then I. It always, I always gets, it always gets finished, and I'm always happy with the result. But it's, it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult uh, to do to me to do a, a print thing, but ultimately more rewarding. You know, having worked in in a publication where there was a very clear digital and print divide, I think there's sort of a um, ghettoization that happens in a lot of publications, whether or not they're willing to admit it. It's. It's absolutely true. I mean, there's just there's different resources. There's different sometimes different floors or different parts of the office. I mean, I, I think if you talk to people off the record, they will pretty much across the board let you know that. And it doesn't sound that way in the, at the times, but I think in a lot of cases, there's sort of a, a power hierarchy between print and web. Uh, for whatever that's worth. But I find that changing. Don't you think that's changing? I mean, I really see that. Mm-hmm. Month to month, probably. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a very dynamic situation. But um... one of the one of the interesting things that we've started to see over the last, I'm going to say, two years maybe, is online entities putting out a print product. Mm-hmm. And I think it's hap- It's I mean, lots of money in fashion, lots of ad money, lots of people, and you know, you see things like. Uh, Pret-a-Porter, the online catalog shopping for women's fashion. Net-a-Porter, sorry, Net-a-Porter. They came out with a print version last year, a year and a half ago. So you an can go magazine, an not, actual not, physical magazine not, once a month. Not a catalog. Not a catalog, a magazine. Wow. An actual magazine. Same with Mr. Porter and some of the other entities, you know, style.com. So... When you see, I think that's the beginning of things really starting to become full circle in terms of the hierarchy of which is more prestigious when you have purely digital entities that then turn around and say, well, we need a print. We need a magazine. Well, it's also interesting that those are shopping, you know, I mean, because that's where I mean, that's, you know, commerce is where a lot of publications are looking to, you know to make some money as to how do we incorporate commerce? How do we get people to buy things that is also journalistically, you know, that doesn't um, compromise us journalistically, but yet, you know, and so if you're starting from a place of commerce, then you kind of have a leg up there. Yeah. The the blurred lines of advertorial used to be so clear, an infomercial and an advertorial. Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't know. You know, I mean, it wasn't always that clear when you're reading the New Yorker and you like, 
When, I mean, the font is the same on those editorials. And if you kind of fold it over, maybe you don't notice. <laughs> well, one of the other interesting things I think about the digital space is the time factor, where it's when you're getting a print magazine or a print newspaper, it's coming in a very chronological sense. And you have, here's my January issue, here's my February issue, it's today's paper. The internet, I click on articles sometimes that were written two years ago, and you think that maybe it's recent. And you had a crazy incident with the guacamole recipe. Oh, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, I, you know, and that's annoying, too. It's like, I wish people would date stuff better. So, so you know tell, gonna... tell the story about the, the guacamole okay, recipe. Okay, so, well, I mean, everybody's heard about the guacamole scandal, the pea if guacamole. If you haven't, but you've if, been yeah. in, you must have been in a writer K-hole for the last, like, two years because... <laughs> exactly, working on a book. Guilty. Um, so I published... Um, a, um, ABC Cocina, you know, which is um, Jean Georges' restaurant. I mean, this is no shabby chef. This is one of the world's best chefs. Um, and he has a Mexican restaurant. And on the menu is guacamole made with peas, pea guacamole. It's He's right by the farmer's market. It's using local ingredients. I mean, it has avocado and peas. It's a little bit lighter. The peas give it a great color, a little bit of sweetness. It's a delicious, delicious dish. So I had a column a couple of years ago called Restaurant Takeaway, where I would write restaurant recipes. And this is one of the ones I featured. It wasn't my recipe, but it was a great recipe. So I published it. Then, you know, somehow... And this got, is a few years ago. Oh, yeah. This was a few years ago. And, and it was then, published online. It was published on, and in the paper. Oh, in no. The, not in the paper. Actually, no. Just online. It was mm-hmm. published online. And um, then our social media folks found the recipe in the archive, and they're like, oh, let's highlight this recipe. I forget why it was like Labor Day or something where you'd want to serve a dip. And they said, put peas in your guacamole. Trust us. And the internet exploded to the point where even President Obama weighed in and said, no peas in the guacamole. Although he did say garlic and guacamole, and so he's so wrong about that. So uh, um, I think peas are less egregious than garlic, frankly. I'd be happy to host a garlic slash pea debate between... The president and Melissa oh, Clark yeah. at any point in time. <laughs> I think if he any, was just. I think if anyone just in, in um, running his social media calendar is listening. <laughs> yeah, it can be. You know, it can be after. You know, any time. Yes, any time. Could be in a year. You know, any time. No, when he's before, done presidenting. Any time. Any time. Open. Open invitation. Um, but. Yeah, so that was one of those things where this was a sleeper recipe. Nobody noticed it when it first came out, and then it became this huge thing. And there were lots of, everyone had their opinion on whether peas were okay in guacamole or peas were not okay in guacamole. Um, let me just say, though, except President Obama accepted, most of the anti-pea people tended to be, there was a big Republican contingent in Texas who were really pissed off about it. Like, for example, you know, Jeb Bush was very pissed off about that, a lot of So, you know, it seems that you, if you want to ally yourself, align yourself with, you know, the more conservative, close-minded people. You can hate peas and guacamole, or you can be open-minded. Because we're not saying that peas should replace avocado. We're just saying that it's they a nice change. To, they should live together. It's as a nice change. In you know, the dip mi- bowl. Mix it up every once in a while. But the point, I think the point is, though, that you can take something that's a total sleeper. and From years ago. With the right social... And it, I mean, what really got this going, and it was great. I mean, it was fantastic. What really got this going was the tweet, which was, trust us. Because we're the New York Times, so people trust us. But peas and guacamole is something that maybe doesn't sound so trustworthy and it was just that those two words that made this thing go viral that's amazing yeah so for all you folks listening out there who want to give some you know add some some saison to your social media just end all your tweets with trust me and then see what happens (laughs) (laughs) or do you find timeliness on the internet versus print affects what you write how you can write not necessarily. I mean, it's it's uh, a good question. I don't know that I'm doing so much that's really breaking news or, uh, you know, it's coming up a little bit more now, but, you know, I tend to do stuff that's recipe based and a little a little more kind of um, evergreen. So uh, but, you know, I'm trying to get more into, you know, news, new restaurants and things like that, you know, what, what I have time to do. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're looking at restaurants, if you're looking at things that are consumer facing, you do have to be very mindful that things can change in a heartbeat. A chef can leave, you know, the menu changes, uh, the the place closes, you know, and that, that all has to be taken into consideration. So really, and it's very, it's 
depends a lot on the publication as well. You know how much that how important that is to them. You know somebody like a a daily uh, daily blender or Food Republic or uh, those types of things. They they want they want the the news that's happening. You know, ten seconds right ago. now. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Periscope it. Yeah. Right now. Exactly. Well, we are out of time, sadly, because we could talk about this for a while, I think, easily. At the end of each show, I like to always ask my guests for a piece of actionable advice for our listeners. So, you know, like you said at the top of the show, Melissa, everybody wants to be a food writer. A lot of people want to write about food. People think it's the bestest job in the world. It is pretty cool. It's extremely competitive. Um... What kind of advice would you give to somebody who wants to be a food writer? Um, well, I definitely think, you know, learn as much as you can. Just go out there and do something new. If, you, if you're already cooking at home a lot, try stodging at a restaurant. If you've already stodged at a restaurant, try going to cooking school. Learn how to write. You know, take a writing class. Start working on a farm. You know, maybe work at the farmer's market if you can't go work on a farm. But just expand your horizons. Try something new, even if it's as simple as cooking with squid if you've never done that you know what i mean try a new recipe but just learn something as often as possible that's gonna make you better no matter what you do Lori, uh i would say what's been most helpful to me uh throughout my career is to always align myself with the best possible people the people that you admire figure out a way that you can work with them or adjacent to them or somehow uh you know learn what you can from them but while adding value to what they're doing. You know, don't be a parasite, but figure out a way. I mean, I was very lucky to work with Mario Batali. Uh, Melissa Clark was was very uh, gracious and, and met with me early on and talked about the cookbook business and, uh, you know, on and on and on. I've, I mean, I, I feel like I've been a lot of right place, right time stuff, but if you're in the right place, if you're and if you make yourself valuable, it's really important to to try and work with the people that you really admire and uh, and give them something and and ideally you will get something back from them that's two really good pieces of advice if you want to be a food writer learn about food and writing and if you want to be a food writer associate with and work with people who are in food and or writing yes there you go recipe for success (laughs) trust us Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Tech Bites. We're here every Monday at 1 o'clock on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I want to thank Melissa Clark from the New York Times. You can find her at Melissa Clark on Twitter or at Clark Bar on Instagram. And Lori Wooliver, writer, handler extraordinaire. You can find her at Lori Wooliver on Instagram and Twitter. Thank I'm you, Jennifer. Jennifer Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.